Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. On the coronavirus front, we've had some concerning news for those with immunocompromised systems. A recent study found that vaccines are proving less effective for them than for those with normal immune systems. 46% of transplant patients had no antibodies after two vaccine shots, and the other 54% who did develop antibodies were at lower levels. For more on why booster shots might be needed for immunocompromised people, we'll speak to Joe Barrett, senior Midwest correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. People with compromised immune systems always have a little bit less of an uptake of uh, vaccines, from what I understand, but it was really stark with the uh, COVID vaccines. The study that came out in April showed that only about 46% of people who hadn't gotten two shots had actually gotten any antibodies. And the people who actually did get antibodies got less than a person with a normal immune system. So there were people out there who had gotten two shots and basically thought they were covered, you know, like everybody else. But it, but it turns out many of them aren't. And you needed to do additional testing to figure out how much immunity you have and, you know, whether you got any at all. There's about 10 million people in the U.S. that take immunosuppressants for various conditions so that's a lot of people that might know somebody in their lives that have an immunocompromised system. The CDC has basically said that they should operate as if they weren't even vaccinated. That's how much they don't really know about this. And that's the big question is, is what to do. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying to explore options right now for how to proceed, how to get them those antibodies. Right. Yeah. Some some people, you know, consulting with their doctors are going out and getting another booster shot. But the uh, CDC says that really needs more study. I mean, they, they just don't want to send people off when they're not 100 percent sure what what the reaction is going to be. Apparently, there's sort of a you know theoretical risk that it could cause organ rejection. I mean, I, I think that, you know, theoretical means relatively <laughs> remote, uh, but they want to do these studies just to make sure that it's safe for people and then, um, and that it, you know, and that it's effective. Is it worth it for them to actually get this extra shot or not? Right. And obviously the way everything works out, that organ is more important than the vaccine would be. You know, you need to take care of that to uh, help complete the body system more than you would need these vaccines. So that's kind of the tough spot to be in. You did speak to a few people who are in this situation. And, you know, one of them specifically, he was a man who went out and got another shot and his antibody levels did shoot up. Yeah, apparently, you know, anecdotally, this is this is working for some people, but, you know, they, they really haven't tested it enough to be sure that it's going to kind of work for everybody. But, you know, they have even talked about, well, if the second, if the third one doesn't work, you could even possibly get a fourth one if it's proving that this is safe. There's also a possible benefit from going, um, say you had Pfizer or Moderna, you know, going what they call cross-platform and having your next shot be a, a Johnson & Johnson, like that might um, spur a reaction that's different than what the other one did. And so, you know, there's a lot of options out there, but, but you know, sort of the CDC in its um, guidance is being, you know, very cautious. And the thought, obviously, is it that it is that cocktail of drugs that is doing something to the vaccine that's that's causing the antibodies not to form? Yeah, people on 
you know, who have had transplants, that's about 500,000 of the 10 million who take immunosuppressants. They take like more than one. And I guess some of them are, some of the immunosuppressants are stronger or make the vaccine even less effective than other ones. Like, so there are some people with lupus who might be taking one of the drugs that the transplant patients take and their chance of getting antibodies is just as low or even lower than people with the transplants. Any, anyways, it's, it's kind of a complicated picture, yeah. but the, the transplant people take often more than one. And, um, and so they're sort of the biggest group that's sort of at risk for this all in, in one lump. So. And so has there been a recommendation for people who take immunosuppressants to go and get tested for antibodies to see what their levels are like right now? Well, I don't think the testing is very widely available at the moment, but they do, you know, they do recommend that people talk to their doctors and their doctors are certainly going to tell them to, you know, wear, wear extra PPE, don't, you know, don't act like you can take that mask off yet because, um, you know, you, you might not be protected. So it's, it's not widely recommended yet that everybody gets tested, um, but it kind of seems like that's the path where we're heading. And the concern is there, as I mentioned, you spoke to a lot of people. You spoke to a woman, I think she was 71 years old. She owns a bar. She has like a, a plastic shower curtain, you know, dividing her from the bar and the patrons. And she deals with a lot of people. She's immunocompromised. I think she got tested. She has no antibodies. So, yeah, she has to kind of operate as she's still in the thick of the pandemic. Yeah, no, I mean, she was really hoping, you know, she could take that thing down. She's got another section of her bar that, you know, she can't open just uh you know, for, for other <laughs> reasons. But, you know, she was hoping to be back, you know, more or less leading a normal life like so many other people making travel plans for the summer. Um, but, yeah, all that stuff is on hold now because when she heard about this news, it was like she thought she was protected and it turned out, no, she really wasn't. Yeah, I guess the next step is doctors are waiting for approvals right now to launch a study of all of this uh, to see if a booster shot would help. So obviously they're looking into it, but these are all the next steps to explore right now. Joe Barrett, senior Midwest correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Take care. California Governor Gavin Newsom continues to face a recall vote, but the early momentum in getting the recall on the ballot has faded, and Republicans are having difficulties making some of the attacks stick. The state is scheduled to reopen June 15th. There's a budget surplus, and even polls look good for Newsom right now, with 57% opposing the recall. For more on all of this, we'll speak to Carla Marinucci, senior writer for Politico's California Playbook. What we're seeing is that Governor Newsom really seems to have the wind in his back right now. I mean, he's got the poll numbers in his favor with only 40 percent of California voters saying they support it. Uh, You've got the state bouncing back from the COVID situation. The budget surplus is unlike anything California has ever seen. He's claiming about a $76 billion surplus and then $27 billion in federal stimulus to boot. Uh, That means Newsom has been able to give away $600 checks uh, in that stimulus. And, uh, you know, on the COVID situation, he's now promising those $50 gift cards to anyone who gets a vaccine to the next 2 million Californians, and then a huge lottery coming in the middle of the month. So right right now, Republican candidates have tried to get traction against him. You've got one Republican candidate, John Cox, has even taken out a thousand pound bear with him on the campaign trail. (laughs) And Kevin Faulkner is trying with, you know, serious policy proposals, but it is hard to get traction against a governor who's got the advantage of the bully pulpit and is going around the state 
almost doing a victory lap with the with the COVID recovery. And, and, you know, that's really what kind of, you know, the recall effort was already set in motion. But that's the thing that really gave it some energy was business closures. And at that time, it was kind of a roller coaster. They were open, then they had to close back down, then they was kind of open in limited capacity. Yeah. That's the thing that really gave it energy. And now we're reopening the state. So that's a tough one to nail on uh, right there. Absolutely. And if you saw over the Memorial Day weekend, boy, things were packed out there. The parks were packed. The beaches were packed. There's no question that California is recovering from this COVID pandemic. And the governor is using that terminology, California roaring back as he's describing these new programs, the stimulus payments, the economic recovery. And it's showing, you know, as we said in his polls right now, the latest Public Policy Institute of California poll showed two thirds of California residents now say they back his handling of the pandemic. And you mentioned that's where this recall began is the anger, the frustration at those businesses closing down, at the schools closing down. Well, right now, most of California is behind Newsom and the way he's reopening up again. So how do the Republicans get traction here? That is the big issue. And it's going to be their challenge, especially if Democrats move up the date of the recall as is being talked about now. That gives Republicans even less time to make an argument against Gavin Newsom. Let's talk about some of the candidates, because you mentioned John Cox coming out there with that huge bear. Uh, You know, I live in California. That day I saw all the news. I was kind of laughing. It was it was kind of a funny stunt. Yeah, well, I was face to face with the bear on the campaign trail. Let me tell you, it wasn't that funny because there was nothing separating the bear from the press corps. I wasn't sure which way that was going to go. You know, other candidates like Caitlyn Jenner, who was getting a lot of national coverage was interesting, but uh, really, I have not seen her do anything local, which is where you really need to be, because those are the people that are going to be voting. Yeah, 40 days into her campaign, we haven't seen a single press conference, a single public event. She's gone to the East Coast to do a couple of very short interviews. Mostly she's selling uh, T-shirts and hats on her website. We haven't seen a lot of policy positions from her. So uh, she's going to have to, I think, uh, either come up with some really detailed positions very soon and do some state media, which she has done none of. Otherwise, I think uh, she's already considered sort of a a fourth-place contender in the polls, only at 6%. And I think Mary Carey, the porn star, is somewhere in that range as well. <laughs> so what do, what do supporters of the recall effort have to do? They need some energy in this. As I mentioned at the beginning, you know, the homeless issue in California, especially in Southern California, is so huge right now. That could be something to uh, pin Gavin Newsom on. What do they need for their effort? Yeah, right now, I mean, you do have some serious Republicans who are starting to focus on that. Kevin Kiley, an assemblyman from uh, the Sacramento area, is saying, look, you need to have somebody really go down the list of the governor's failures this year, particularly on taxation issues and other issues that have caused major businesses to leave this state. He believes, and other Republicans believe, that Newsom is vulnerable also on crime issues, law and order issues, defunding the police, some of the more uh, progressive Democrats calling for that. And many Republicans are saying that is an issue that is going to hit with voters. And you mentioned homelessness. It is still sort of at pandemic level in a lot of uh, cities here in California. Oakland, Venice Beach is another area where people are complaining about this. And a rise 
national scale. And the feeling is that Newsom has not done enough, at least Republicans are making that case, that that is an area also where he's vulnerable. So, yes, there are issues that resonate with not only Republicans, but independent voters here in California. And the cost of housing is another big one. That's another issue that's causing uh, some Californians to leave the state and go elsewhere. And Republicans are saying they have the opportunity to maybe bring along some of those independents and disgruntled Republicans and get them together. The bottom line is Republicans are much more energized to vote in this recall than Democrats are. And a uh, Berkeley uh, poll showed that 75% of Republicans have a high interest in the recall. That's more than double the share of Democrats. So Democrats are a little worried that they may not get kind of turnout on this election. That's the Republican hope here, that they can turn out their voters and get across that 50 plus 1% of the vote that they need on that first question on the recall ballot, which is should Gavin Newsom be recalled? They want to get 50 plus 1%. If they do, then it's uh, Katie, bar the door. You've got already 63 candidates for governor out there. I mean, it's going to be a tough sell still in a deeply Democratic state. In the meantime, Newsom is going on a fundraising binge, raising a lot of money. And that's also going to factor in as we get closer to the actual vote. So we'll keep monitoring all of that, see how it turns out. Carla Marinucci, senior writer at Politico's California Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Good to be with you. Thanks. Finally, for this week, many companies are debating what the road back to the office will look like and they better be prepared to make more remote work part of that equation. A recent survey showed that almost 40% of workers would quit a job if their employers were not flexible about working remotely. For more on how important remote work has become over the course of the pandemic, we'll speak to Anders Mellon, reporter at Bloomberg News. Last year, we went through essentially this grand national experiment of making millions of white-collar workers work from home or work from somewhere else than, than their office. And, you know, the economy is still humming, companies are still making money and and productivity is still high. So people are looking at that and and saying, why can't we keep working from home also now? And that's happening to an extent that some of the folks that we talk to, they have simply just left their old jobs and found new ones that would allow them to work remotely full time. And we spoke to experts that say that there's reason to believe that this might continue into the summer and into the fall as well of people shifting jobs because there's a lot of preferences to working from home for many people. And some companies are willing to grant those additional flexibility and those that don't might have a hard time keeping their people. Yeah, it's definitely a curious thing. I mean, coming out of the pandemic, a lot of people are demanding that flexibility. I mean, that's why we're talking about this right now. But as things do get back to normal, you know, I'm wondering if if the companies are going to have more strength in their position to demand that workers come back to the office. Some of the polls that just came out, I think it was about 40% that said they'd quit if they couldn't continue to work remotely. And the top things that they say why they want to keep doing that is lack of commute, and the cost savings associated with all that. That's absolutely right. Nobody, I think, really wants to go back to the commute that we had pre-pandemic, whether that was on trains or, or whether that was driving. One important factor that also plays into this is the relative strength in, in the labor market in terms of, for the employees, there was not a ton of movement throughout the pandemic because of the uncertainty. So now you have a bunch of pent-up job moves that probably would have happened last year, but that is now instead coming. And then you add that to the trend that we're starting to see the beginnings of of people just wanting to keep that remote work. And given that it is a good job market for job seekers, there's reason to believe, the experts said that we talked to, that 
it might actually be to their advantage also continuing this year uh, and that companies might actually just have to start adapting or risk to see some of their people leaving. Some of the workers you spoke to also said that they feel that managers, you know, employers just want tighter controls over the workforce as well. But what is uh, what have corporate leadership, what have uh, business owners, what have they said about this? How do they feel about having workers work remotely? So it's been a bit of a mixed message. Bloomberg being largely focused on the financial industry, there we've seen some CEOs coming out quite strongly advocating for an in-office culture. Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan said a few weeks ago that remote work does not work for those who want to hustle and said if you don't want to commute, then, you know, too bad. That's just how it's going to be. Whereas in other sectors, including tech, remote work and then flexibility has been you know, a thing for years. And over there, more corporate leaders have already last year came out very early and said, we're just going to be fully remote or we're going to give workers the opportunity to choose how they want to do. So it's it's a mixed landscape. And I think also at this point, many corporate leaders are kind of waiting to see what everybody else is doing and also particularly waiting to see what their rivals are going to do and may have to adapt accordingly in order to stay competitive and make sure that people don't affect to rivals. So it's still a bit of a waiting game. And I think a lot of it is going to shake out over the summer and particularly as we head into the fall when summer vacations are over and people come back from where they might hang out during the warmer months and callbacks to offices might actually be in full swing, so to say, towards the end of the summer. Even on this kind of hybrid model in the way it is, everybody's kind of fallen along the same lines, at least from what I've seen, you know, generally, that the magic number is probably three days in the office, two days working from home. If they're going with that model, you know, staying away from the complete 100% remote working model, that seems to be agreeable by both sides in a lot of cases. It does. Yeah, that's a survey that we cited by PwC. By It looked at U.S. executives and those bosses said precisely that three days a week was kind of the magic number. I think the larger theme that we heard and saw in the conversations that we had was just that people feel like last year it worked. And when companies were forced to empower workers to work from home and trust them that things would get done, it largely worked. And people just don't really want to give up the flexibility and and perhaps having the option to work from home and, and have it not necessarily be a big deal or look down upon or have to ask for permission. So I think just the sense of of freedom and then greater control is really what people would like and, and not necessarily just a certain number of days in the office. And to be clear, you know, these people are very lucky. They're not everybody has that flexibility to choose what they want to do. You know, our frontline workers in a lot of industries have to be in the office or at their workplace to get the job done. So, you know, they may be feeling like they can quit their jobs right now, but who knows if that position will hold up strong enough in the long term. So just something to kind of look at on that front. That's very true. It's a it's a very good point. Of course, this is a a class, enjoy, a class of workers enjoying a certain privilege in terms of being able to work from home or from, from other places. And many people who do jobs that make sure that society hums along as it should don't have that liberty. Anders Mellon, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. We'll be right back.